from Kirko Media. So what you gonna do about it? Don't breathe. Don't touch that doorknob. And certainly, don't touch that friend. If you're a germaphobe like me, this is your show. We've hijacked this week's edition of Meet Me in the Middle to bring you parts of our coronavirus edition of one of our other shows, Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. It's important politically and psychologically to separate fact from fiction and media hype from authoritative real advice. We'll be guided through this discussion by our host of Medicine We're Still Practicing, Dr. Stephen Tabak, and the infectious disease specialist and infection control expert, Dr. Suzanne Donovan. The last time Dr. Donovan was in our Malibu studios, she shared her experiences fighting Ebola outbreaks in the West African nation of Sierra Leone, as well as her multi-decade efforts to control the AIDS crisis. If you want to be inspired by a true story of heroism, you owe it to yourself to check out our fourth and fifth episodes of Medicine We're Still Practicing. So sit back, join me in learning a thing or two about the real coronavirus and its political and personal realities. Hey, Mike, where's my Purell? It will be okay. Welcome to Medicine We're Still Practicing, the Coronavirus Edition. I'm Bill Curtis. If you've joined us here before, you've heard me introducing my co-host as the triple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and critical care, my good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. But wait. As of today, he's the quadruple board certified, earning the certification for stroke and neurocritical care. That's amazing. Congratulations, Steve. And I'm certifiable. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, we've all heard about this newfangled disease out of Wuhan, China, called the coronavirus. It's the one that the World Health Organization called a grave threat to the world. Well, Dr. Tabak and I have invited back an amazing doctor to set us straight on the subject. Dr. Suzanne Donovan. She's one of the most inspirational professionals that Steve and I have ever had the honor of having on our show. She is a renowned infectious disease specialist and infection control expert with Olive View UCLA Medical Center in Silmar, California. So who better to help us understand the realities and the rumors around coronavirus? Dr. Suzanne Donovan, welcome back. Thank you for the invite to come back and uh, talk about this new epidemic with, with all of you. Dr. Steve Tell us what we're really dealing with here. Coronavirus has been around, you know, for probably millions of years. I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, it's this small little RNA, you know, particle. Uh, But it hasn't been as virulent uh, as what we're seeing, I don't think, in in the history of, certainly of man. But uh, best to talk about, you know, what this is, I think, is, is our esteemed guest. You know, why now? Why this little virus that has sort of caused colds and, and, and flu-like symptoms? Why now is it becoming so deadly? What's going on? I think we all need to remember that this is the third epidemic we've had related to a coronavirus. We had SARS in uh, 2002-2003. The next decade, we had MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, in around 2012, and now we have this novel coronavirus uh, in 2020, 2019 really, initially um, at least identified in, in China. So this is nothing new, and also it's really important to remember that our ability to detect epidemics and to detect the, the, the origin of the epidemic has changed dramatically 
in the last 50 years with molecular technology. So we've just gotten better at testing for it? I think we've gotten better at early diagnosis of outbreaks. But, you know, you would know if there was a pandemic. That's uh, correct. And, you know, so that would not be any mystery. But is this not more virulent than SARS and MERS? Well, I think when we use the term virulent, we have to be very clear what we're talking about. Virulence refers to a disease and its ability to cause organ destruction or death to the host. The data that we have to date is that this is much less virulent than SARS and MERS. The other thing I I think it's really important to say is there's a lot of talking heads out there on coronavirus. Some that are super smart, much smarter than than I am. Um, Maybe some that are a little less informed. And we know very little about this virus at this point. We don't know the attack rate. In other words, if we one of us had the virus in this room right now, how many individuals would be infected in the next two weeks. We don't really know that. The other thing we don't know is we don't know the case fatality rate. In other words, out of 10 people that have coronavirus, how many will go on to die or how many will end up have, having significant morbidity or disease from this, ending up in the ICU, ending up on a ventilator. We have none of this data coming out of China. All we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg are the deaths, and the people being hospitalized. We have no idea of the scope of the number of individuals that are infected that are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic because that data is not there. I think our most important job, if you look at MERS and SARS or even Ebola in the U.S., is first to manage the anxiety and to manage the communication and the message about this virus. It's important that the the public know about this virus so that everyone can be alerted to the dangers. I am just unfortunately on a soapbox about irresponsible reporting and, and sensationalism, but I think it does a disservice to the population. The chair of public health at Hong Kong University said that he believes 60% of the world's population is at risk. How does he come to a statement like that? He's doing what's called, and I believe that article that he wrote it is not not yet peer-reviewed. He's doing what is called mathematical out, uh, modeling of outbreaks. So there's something called r naught, uh, which is would be similar to the attack rate, which is the number of individuals that are going to be infected during the time the individual is infectious. So influenza would be around one and a half individuals, maybe two. To put it in perspective, measles would be around 15 to 17. Wow. I'm much more concerned about a measles case, which we had recently in Los Angeles, coming in than a case of coronavirus. So if you look at the handful of cases that we've had in the U.S., we're not seeing exponential growth here in the U.S. What's the difference between having the flu and having coronavirus? That's a great question. I would say for most individuals with a coronavirus, which we diagnose all the time in, in the U.S., it's like having a cold. You're more likely probably to feel a lot sicker with the flu than you would for the run-of-the-mill coronavirus. This particular coronavirus, we don't quite understand the dynamics of what it does in individuals yet. What we do know is that there appears to be a lower rate of complication in the pediatric population for reasons we don't understand. What we don't know is whether this coronavirus is going to be like SARS. During the SARS outbreak, the virus responsible for SARS 
was able to change its genetic code to become more virulent, to actually become more dangerous to the human hosts. That did not happen during the MERS outbreak, and we don't know what's going to happen with this virus. And so I think we have more unanswered questions about both the clinical presentation of what happens when someone gets sick, but also the dynamics of the infection. Why do younger individuals not get as sick as older individuals? Is there anything, any symptom at all that you can tell us is unique to coronavirus that is different than the flu? I would say there is nothing that would distinguish a bad cold from someone with coronavirus. So how does a hospital know to test for coronavirus? So the current CDC criteria, because it's different in every country, the current criteria is that you have a combination of clinical symptoms and what we call epidemiologic risk factors. So epidemiologic risk factors is where have you been and what have you been doing? Stuff we ask our kids all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So where have you been? Have you been to China? And what part of China is number one? And number two, what symptoms are you having? And the symptoms they're looking for is a fever and respiratory symptoms. Important to remember. Respiratory meaning I'm coughing, I'm congested. Cough and short of breath or a fever. If you have a strong epidemiologic risk factor, you're from Wuhan or you're in a household with someone from Wuhan who is symptomatic and you have symptoms of a fever or a cough, that hospital ER should call public health and they will confirm that and then they will authorize screening. No doctor in the studio can order this test. It's not orderable through a private lab. This incubation period that they've been talking about, which is 2 to 14 days, basically any time during that time you can essentially be a carrier, right? You can give it to people? Let's talk about those terms. A carrier is different than someone who has mild symptoms versus someone who's symptomatic. There was one case reported out of Germany that was published as a letter in New England Journal of Medicine stating that an asymptomatic case transmitted the virus. However, it appeared the authors did not talk to the patient. Perfect. Yes. So they wrote up the communication, and it turned out the case was symptomatic. But what is very important to remember is for most, the vast majority of infections, there is a very clear relationship between the amount of virus in your body and your symptoms. What that means is you're most likely to be infectious when you have symptoms. And the way you transmit coronavirus, the main way to transmit coronavirus is by coughing and depositing droplets on you. You're three feet away from me, so I could infect you. If you're asymptomatic, the only way you can transmit that virus is by touching your mucous membranes and then touching a surface and then you would touch it. This is a very low-risk issue. We need to focus in on the symptomatic population. So does this live on surfaces at yes. all? Yes, yes it does. For how long? Well, I'm, I would love to find that out, right? So we're still getting environmental surface data, but we know in general... Coronaviruses are what are called envelope viruses, so they have a little protection around themselves. So they can persist on surfaces for even over a week, which is why it's very, very You're important. You're killing me, Suzanne. <laughs> In this country, we do not have ongoing coronavirus transmission. I see here where we live, many students, many individuals wearing masks, and I'm wondering... 
the only reason to wear a mask is if you're having symptoms. Or if you're robbing a bank. Well, I think oh, yeah. <laughs> that'll do it. But they're wearing a mask for self-protection. There is no reason to wear a mask in the absence of you having symptoms or you're going into a hospital and you're going to be seeing a patient. But only when you're working with a patient who exactly. has coronavirus. So exactly. we're not advocating, and you're not advocating, I'm sure, using a mask of any kind to be in the general population. Whether you're on an airplane, whether you're having dinner in Chinatown, there's little reason to be doing that in this country. Well, there's two reasons not to do it. Number one, for what you just said, and number two, we now have an international shortage of both categories of masks. So what can the general population do uh, without becoming hysterical to protect themselves in a general sort of way, day to day? We've already said that they shouldn't be walking around with masks. Does it help them to use hand sanitizers, uh, alcohol-based sanitizers, or should we be washing our hands more frequently? Or does none of that really have an impact? Hand sanitizers can be used for coronavirus. Anything that has a high enough alcohol content will kill coronavirus. I think the problem when we talk about hand sanitizers is that's a big market, and you can have varying degrees of alcohol. Is Purell a hand sanitizer that works here? Yes, and the reason I like hand sanitizers is it's very convenient. You can carry a hand sanitizer with you. You frequently do not have access to soap and water. Um, in many places. So I, if you're traveling, bring a hand sanitizer with you. Is that effective against the flu as well? Yes, it is. Back in the category of allaying concerns, would it be safe to say for our listeners that those people who uh, thus far that are dying of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, are people who are more elderly, more infirm, more immunocompromised, the typical death that you see from the influenza virus, the recent H1N1, right. you know, notwithstanding from a decade ago or less than that. 2009, yeah. But is it not safe to say that really those people who are most at risk are those people who are elderly, infirm, immunocompromised? Um, Isn't it the same with the flu? It is, indeed, that's and that's correct. the point. I mean, it's a national security issue, is it not? If we're, if the media is propagating this panic mentality, yes. you can certainly say that there's no reason for panic at this juncture. And yet the media is fanning the flames of panic because that was is what's going to get people to tune in to their show. But what they should be saying is just the opposite. Yes, it's dangerous, it's serious, but at this juncture, they should be saying there's no reason for alarm. I think it underscores something we talked about in our last show, is the grave importance of supporting our public health agencies, both here in this country and internationally. And I believe I mentioned in the last show that our current government cut back funding for both the CDC, which trickled down to cutbacks in the public health departments, who are the first responders to every epidemic. They also cut back funding for international laboratories that were scattered throughout the world, where the focus was on emerging infections. And I think instead of talking about, you know, concerns about getting on a bus or going into Chinatown or or am I safe on my school campus, we really need to focus attention on supporting our public health agencies. Well, I'm going to want to talk about that a little more in a minute, uh, but we're going to take a quick break while I see what it takes to go live on the moon. We'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) It will be okay. 
On Medicine, We're Still Practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. So what you gonna do about it? So it turns out that the moon has decided to quarantine Earth and I can't go. Uh, but we're back. So, Tedros Adhanom, World Health Organization Director General, he addressed uh, 400 researchers as he entered the Geneva WHO meeting. I think that was today or yesterday. Can you tell us a little about that meeting? WHO, for those of you that are not familiar with it, would be kind of like the CDC for the world. And I think people's... Expect- world Health Organization. It stands for World Health Organization. Who and runs I, it? It's based in Geneva. And it's funded by any country that ends up donating. Uh, The U.S., I believe, has cut back on their donations, but it's funded. We need to talk about that later. Yes. Um, What most people don't realize is it's severely under-resourced. And in fact, I think during the Ebola outbreak, CDC was more well-resourced than the WHO. And so they're very dependent on each country providing resources to support both the epidemiology and the response to these outbreaks. They don't have a clinical arm, um, so really what they're focused in is on public health, the public health response. And so they were finally allowed to go into into China to do their investigation, and actually the individual who's leading that effort led the effort during the Ebola outbreak, and he's very well regarded. I was very discouraged that the CDC team, as of yet, has not been clearly invited uh, to join the WHO team. So let's go back to our director general as he addressed these these researchers in Geneva. And he, he made three points that I want to go over with you. He said, this outbreak is testing our political solidarity, whether the world can come together to fight a common enemy that does not respect borders or ideologies. It's a test of financial solidarity, whether the world will invest in fighting this outbreak now or pay more later and deal with its consequences. And a test of its scientific solidarity, will the world come together to find shared answers to shared problems? Let's talk about those individually for a minute. Okay. The political solidarity, the borders and the ideologies. How do you expect that that's going to be affected by this process? Well, it's very interesting. I, I don't think that we are all going to come together in a kumbaya moment. And yet I think... If, there, if the tides change politically in this country, we will certainly do better than what we have done in the past. But I think there has been a, a movement that is gaining certain momentum when you're talking about climate change, that this is not too far off from the same issue and certainly affects us epidemiologically. The World Health Organization is doing the best they can with limited resources. But I think that it's wide open for somebody to come and organize countries in a way that is really beneficial epidemiologically and also on the climate scale issue. Everyone talks about the problem, but have you had anybody really suggest a reasonable solution? I think that's a time frame issue. I think that people in other countries, as well as some people in our own, believe that the climate change issue doesn't affect us as our generation, and so they're not worried about it, where this might ruin your February. But my point is, what we need to do, and I don't have this misapprehension that this podcast is going to do it, but I think people talking and communicating and hopefully will help stimulate and inspire people to organize 
to come up with solutions globally. The second item was it's a test of financial solidarity, whether the world will invest in fighting this outbreak now or pay more later and deal with its consequences. What's your position on that? He's speaking uh, to the fact that the WHO is critically under-resourced, and I don't think most people understand when they made the distinction of calling the coronavirus an epidemic of international importance, Mm -hmm. I think. People were thinking, oh, that's just like a label. It actually means something. It means that they are asking specifically for money from participating countries. When they make that call, it's asking for resources. Vis-a-vis, it's a national emergency. Yes. Therefore, you can get federal funds to your local states. It's mobilizing funds worldwide. Exactly. And up until recently, the U.S. has been the leader in outbreak response. Even if the outbreak has not been in this country or this continent, we've been the leader, we've been the expertise. There's a reason why the Chinese Public Health Department is called the Chinese CDC. It's because we train them. So the fact that we are not on the ground in China during this epidemic is is really disconcerting because we have the expertise, we have the experience, we have the knowledge, the ability to work with a lot of different systems and... It's really a political crime to not have the involvement at this level that we have to offer. It's a test of scientific solidarity. The world comes together with a goal of finding shared answers to shared problems. Do you expect that that's going to happen in this case? Well, I'm an optimist. I'm (laughs) I'm an eternal optimist. That's the purpose of WHO. I, I just love what he said, and I would hope that we combine financial solidarity with scientific solidarity. And that is the function of WHO. And it's the function of every country, really in the world, that has the resources uh, to cooperate, share data, and support the WHO's efforts. So is that what we should be doing then uh, globally, is just supporting WHO? Or do we need some other uh, governing body worldwide, a group of physicians from every country coming together together, to be more political than the WHO is capable of being? I think there's other groups of physicians that come, you know, to come together for responses. But the purpose of the WHO is really to be the international response to epidemics and pandemics. And if we don't support them, then we're, we're each doing our own thing and really looking after our own interests. And the WHO technically should be serving the world's interests and not a country's interests. Even though it's based in Geneva, it's not just Swiss physicians. It frequently will use the resources from the CDC. It works very closely with NGOs, non-governmental organizations like MSF, Doctors Without Borders, International Red Cross, uh, many other organizations. So I I really do support um, what he has said. Whether he's going to get the support and WHO will get the support. I am concerned uh, because I think the U.S. has traditionally been a leader in this area, and I don't see us being a leader. Okay. Why? Why? Yeah. I think it's our current administration. I mean, is it is it a political thing whether we get involved in something that is so apolitical? I think it's an approach that we focus on U.S. interests to the exclusion of other countries whether it's an economic, whether it's an immigration, whether it's global warming, uh, or whether it's outbreaks. It's a political platform, I think, of our current administration. Yeah. Yeah. 
if it was, you know, the, the former administration, um, I think there would be much more far-reaching um, in terms of, uh, you know, a global support and supporting other countries. But we have some of the best scientists in the world here in this country, and we have some of the best doctors, and, you know, we have Suzanne Donovan. Right, and she's involved <laughs> globally, but, you know, there's 7 billion people, and there's only so many people she can take care of. But if Suzanne is willing to get involved globally, that happens outside of the purview of our government, right? True, but, it, I mean, Suzanne is not going to be able to fund the Let's World Health Organization. Let's talk about her like she's not here. <laughs> <laughs> right? She's not going to be able to fund the World Health Organization in any appreciable degree. That, that money is going to have to come from governments. Is it a money thing, Suzanne? I think it's a combination of financial resources, whether it's for protective equipment, uh, for education, uh, WHO, one of their huge charges or large charges that they do is, is education and developing resources within each country so that that country can become its own leaders in public health and epidemic response. Uh, many of those resources have been cut back over the last five to ten years. In 2014, um, we had expanded support for public health in this country and for international labs to evaluate emerging infections, and the support for those labs have been cut recently. And, and is, it, is it that financial support that leads to a vaccine? It's not just financial support that leads to a vaccine. I mean, if you look at what happened with the Ebola vaccine, a lot of that is, is other agencies like the Gates Foundation coming together uh, to lead the charge. I don't know that WHO is going to lead the charge for a vaccine. I suspect it's going to be other entities that do. And I think people are looking at vaccines or looking at medications or looking at quick fixes. The foundation to respond to any epidemic is basic epidemiology, putting people on the ground, doing contact tracing to every case so that you stop the chain of transmission. And I don't believe that happened at the beginning of this outbreak in China. And unfortunately, I don't even know that we have any data of where this outbreak originated. We know that some individuals had exposure to a live animal market. I don't see any data from that live animal market that any of those animals had this novel coronavirus. So, Suzanne, you've probably had to experience this before, the uh, dealing with a, a, a virus that is considered an enemy that doesn't respect borders or ideologies. Can you tell us a little about when it's worked, when you think that we've been cooperative as a world, and will it come together this time? I think the outbreak that we had in, in Liberia and Sierra Leone um, in 2014, where WHO worked with non-governmental organizations and the CDC, I think it worked very well. It was late. It was a very late response, but it did come together. It did not happen in the most recent Ebola outbreak, where I think people had what we call outbreak fatigue. You know, it followed, you know, a two-year outbreak and... Really, add the hell with it. Yeah, the hell with it, and it was in the DRC where, you know, most people don't even know where that is. Right, it wasn't global at that it, point. It, it wasn't global. It didn't it didn't really impact us in the same way where the entire Western Africa was impacted. My sense politically as being someone older is that we've we've shifted to a much more isolationist point of view, and I've always made an argument that we're one plane trip away from an outbreak. 
Uh, I know that's not going to make you feel good, but that's true. We can pull in our guns, build walls, shut our borders, but whatever is happening across the world is going to make its way here. Suzanne, can you give our listeners a couple of go-forward thoughts that you can leave them with so that they can have a good sense of what's happening with this virus? What are the three points that we should know about it? I think when, when we reflect on the coronavirus outbreak, I think we need to remember we've been here before. We've experienced two prior coronavirus outbreaks, and we've learned a lot from those outbreaks. The hospital system in the U.S. has tremendously improved its infection control response. And there's some simple things people can do to protect themselves against coronavirus and flu viruses. You've already heard those. Wash your hands. Stay home if you're sick. But the other more important thing is is more of a global approach is, is really supporting our public health system. The foundation of responding to any epidemic, or even better yet, preventing epidemics, is supporting the CDC, the WHO, and our local public health departments. So, Dr. Donovan, where should people go to get reliable information, other than the show, of course, going forward? The CDC has a fantastic site for novel coronavirus, and and in fact, just go to the site because you can pretty much learn about any recent outbreaks that are going on in the U.S. or internationally. But they have a really good site for the public that gives you up-to-date information. You can also go to the WHO site, which also gives you more of an international slant. But the CDC site for people in the U.S. is is a really fantastic resource. Dr. Steve, with all that Dr. Suzanne Donovan said about we really don't know everything about this virus yet, we really picked the right name for this show. (laughs) This is medicine. We're still practicing. Indeed we are. Every day. Dr. Suzanne Donovan, thank you so much for coming. And I'm sure either next time I sneeze or next time we get a chance to have you back here, we would be honored to have you come. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.